This is Judaism Unbound, episode 29, Lab Shul. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rofus. And we are here today after having spent the last few weeks looking at the Torah, the Bible, as a work of art that was enormously consequential in shaping the Jewish future of its time. And now we are turning our attention to the role of art and artists in shaping the Jewish present and future of our time. Our guest today is Amichai Laulavi, the founder of Storytelling and the spiritual leader of Lab Shul. He is someone that has been very intimately involved in the interconnection between art and Judaism for the last decade plus, and there really isn't anybody better to start us off on this exploration. So, Amichai, thank you so much for joining us. It's really a pleasure to have you on Judaism Unbound. Thank you, Lex and Dan. I'm delighted to be bound along with you. (laughs) Great. So, Amichai, I guess the best place to start would be with your current project, and I think that'll end up taking us into all the other places that we want to go. So, I'm wondering if you could start us off just by giving us a basic description of what LabShul is and what it does and and why it came about. With pleasure. LabShul is a contemporary congregation based in New York City. We are revamping an old favorite, which is basically the Jewish congregation. Uh, And by revamping, I'm trying to think of who our modern audiences are and what are the sensibilities and needs of modern Jews in an urban center such as New York. And we're a lab, meaning we're trying things out, really anything and everything. And we're a shul because we're liking the homey, cozy concept of what a congregational arena is about. Labshul is now four years old. We emerged out of an earlier model of a theater company, the storytelling theater company that is now 15 years old. And what happened very organically is that the practitioners, artists, and fans of the theater group here in the city spent a little, so much time over time creating ritual space and communal space that we simply morphed into the sense of a community and a congregation. So what Labshul does right now uh, it creates uh, opportunities for sacred environments, whether that is worship or study or social action. We support people in many life cycle moments. And we serve as a lab to really think of where the arts are integrated as a pivotal way of making meaning of our lives. And it keeps evolving. We have a few thousand people who show up for the High Holy Days. We are pop-up, so people come to us for different locations throughout the year for Shabbat or other holidays. We are God-optional, meaning we're user-friendly and everybody-friendly, that is Jewish and not, uh, believers or not. And the way that is depicted is the way we work on uh, liturgy and the type of environment that is really outside the box, inviting people to think about spirituality in a new way. We are also experimenting what does it look like to be virtual. So the conversation we're having right now is not one that's happening with people sitting and talking in person. And we're wondering what that will have for the future of our people and all people as far as the sacred experience. So we're experimenting with a lot of digital and virtual stuff as well. And uh, we're young, we're supple, and it's fun. So we get to ask a lot of questions and throw a lot of things at the wall and see what sticks. Well, great. I'd like to come back to all of that uh, as we go on. But let's start in part because this is the section of our podcast that we're in. Um, But also, I think it's in a certain sense uh, at the core of of what you've been doing, which is this issue of artist-driven, you know, that LabShul builds itself as an artist-driven community. And 
I'm curious if you could help us in the next few weeks. We will we'll be talking to some artists, but it's interesting to talk to an artist about their art and try to get them to talk about it and to sort of explain what they're trying to do. I, I think a lot of times artists actually aren't sure exactly what they're trying to do. They just are artists. And so it, it comes out incredible. Um, and I'm wondering, though, as someone who's both an artist and someone who's running an organization that's artist driven, I think that you're in a position to be able to reflect about what it is exactly that artists bring to the table. Uh, what is the perspective of artists on this Jewish stuff? What do you want it to be? Where do you think all that can go as part of building the Jewish future? Whew, it's a whopper. <laughs> I mean, I'll, I'll start off by by telling you this. I, back in 98, 99, had the passion to make Jewish literacy accessible to people so that the progressive agenda, the inclusive agenda, the the queer and feminist agenda is grounded in Jewish knowledge and not just in feel-good ideologies. And I, as somebody who grew up Orthodox and was privileged to the, really the, the hardcore and the the motherload of Jewish literacy, I wanted to make that available to other people. And I noticed that people were reluctant to just hop into Jewish study or Jewish experience because they didn't know the the what's what and the why. But one of the ways to get people engaged and disarm the suspicion and the feeling of, of being inadequate was through lower stakes and through amusement and through humor and through entertainment and through art. So I was working with theater and I was working with media as a way to invite people into the conversation of Jewish identity and Jewish literacy without the expectation that this is a religious obligation, that this is an educational enterprise. So this is about aesthetics. This is about an emotional exploration of identity. And for many years, my work was through the, the juxtaposition of theater, media, education, and spirituality. And the flag that I waved by founding a theater company in 1999 was Artists of the New Rabbis. And Artists of the New Rabbis was my way of saying, I don't want to become a rabbi. I want to be a, a theater practitioner. I want to be a translator of Judaism. I want to use the stagecraft as a way to get into the heart and invite people for the conversation. And we'll see where it goes from there. And the whole gestalt of storytelling was going into the synagogue arena as a site-specific theatrical artistic enterprise opening up the Bible and inviting people to rethink our relationship to sacred scripture and to the politics of it and to our identity with it. And I think what was so powerful about storytelling as it evolved into Lapshul was that we came from the point of view of art. And that is a different invitation into the heart and into why people would be engaged with it. And I think it was successful, uh, again, as a way to invite people in. What happened along the way was that I think the world is evolving and the Jewish world is evolving to an extent. Art seemed, at least to me, after 10 years of doing it, not enough of a game changer. In some ways in the community, in the Jewish community, art is important, but it's a garnish. It's a side dish. And I felt like the impact I want to make on who is a Jew, what is Jewish, what is spiritual, what is universal in the 21st century, needed more of an insider's 
attitude. So my own direction was from saying that artists are the new rabbis, I actually said rabbis are the new artists. And I want to become a rabbi who uses art, whether it's the theatrical arts, the aesthetic, graphic arts, music, just architecture, the notion of how the art enhances our experience. I wanted to do that as a rabbi and be a smarter, more strategic change agent from within. And alongside with me, I moved my community to think of ourselves not just as artists, but as a congregation that is artist-driven. So this is a subtle but a dramatic shift. I have a very broad question, which has come to my mind recently in conversations with people who think of themselves either as artists who are Jewish or as Jewish artists. As an organization, as a community, you're artist-driven. Do, do you have, or may, do you organizationally or you personally have sort of a definition of what Jewish art is? No. I speak for myself, and this is a great question to bring up with my team and, and people in the community. Forget Jewish art. There's art. There's the way people think of how the world is expressed through artistic lenses. If these people are Jewish, fine. If these people biologically or identity-wise are not Jewish, fine. Are we looking at a Jewish theme? Are we looking at a Jewish story? Are we looking at a Jewish memory? And are we rebranding it or reimagining it in ways that speak to today's experience? That's fine. So I, 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 would, I would venture a guess that we're not interested in, you know, Chagall, but we can say that also Michelangelo is Jewish art because he's dealing with Moses and he's painting the Bible. And whether Rothko used Jewish in his art and whether Leonard Bernstein is Jewish or not, those are lesser important of topics for me. What I'm interested in is what are they adding or what do we as artists add to the vocabulary and the symbology that is part of the Jewish canon. When you talk about artists are the new rabbis or rabbis are the new artists, I'm trying to figure out if or how it connects with something that we've been thinking about a lot lately, which is the question of Judaism itself as a material of art, or let's say as a material. And the question is, what do you do with that material, right? That one approach to a set of material is sort of to preserve it or to guard it. You know, we think of maybe the gold in Fort Knox, but an artist would see that same material. And I think, is it Michelangelo who talked about, you know, that I, uh, I only release the, the sculpture that's inside of the rock already. You know, I look at this piece of stone and I see the sculpture within it. And, you know, it feels to me like that's, the way that an artist thinks. And one of the things that I think that we're trying to encourage with this podcast is an attitude that Jews, whether they're professionals or lay people, should treat Judaism itself as a material to be reshaped in an artistic way and not as, as something simply to be sort of preserved or, or locked up in a, in a vault. And, um, and I guess I'm wondering from you whether that sort of accords with what you're talking about. And then also, how do we shape or find or recruit the, the people that are going to look at Judaism and play with Judaism that way? You know, are we looking for people who are are artists in the sense that they are already have the personality of an artist, or is this something that, that any person can be kind of 
freed to act this way by a certain kind of education or a certain kind of experiences that might be able to be provided for them? For me, what this comes down to is the question of the bottom line. Why do Jewish? Why create Jewish? Whether it's to write a play or join a synagogue or have a be mitzvah or open a Jewish book or listen to this podcast. My answer and my risk, quite frankly, but my proposal is that the bottom line of why interact with Jewish life is that it makes my life richer as a human being. Man, woman, gay, straight, white, black, Israeli, American, etc., of all ages. At the end of the day, we want a rich life, a full life from sunrise to sunset, from crib to coffin and in between that is imbued with meaning that makes my own experience of the world meaningful and makes me part of a larger ecosystem in a helpful way. I think Judaism has what to offer the human being, the modern human being, uh, confronted with so many options and a smorgasbord of cultural opportunities with a real magnificent menu of options for making life meaningful on an individual and collective level. But the bottom line for me, and I'm hoping for people in my immediate community, is not that I, at the end of the day, am a good Jew, and that I am a happy and helpful human being utilizing, for whatever reason, biology or choice, the Jewish system to make my life rich and full. So as an artist or someone who appreciates art, and that is all of us, what does the Jewish story and Jewish art have to offer my life, my family, my community? Is it beautifying my home in ways that Jews do, whether it's that there is a mezuzah, and what does the mezuzah look like, and what does it mean that my threshold is marked with a prop, with a ritual signifier of coming and going? Whether it's the colors that I choose or the objects that I choose to decorate my walls, whether it's what I wear and how I wear it, whether it's how I mark moments in my day and throughout my life, I think if we are reframing the why and the what as these are tools to make your life meaningful, then the so many people who are turned away and turned off from a parochial um, insular Judaism will actually become interested. Yeah, it's an interesting connection, uh, at least for us. The topic of why be Jewish has been separate from its inherent importance, uh, just philosophically. But from a strategic standpoint, I mean, it, it seems that one of the changes in the state of the Jews in our times is that they don't have to be Jewish, right? They don't have to live a Jewish life, and and they're going to have to choose whether and how much to live a Jewish life. And it seems that that means that Judaism is going to have to answer that question, what's the good of this? And the challenge is, okay, well, how does Judaism shift? That wasn't the evolutionary reality that produced the Judaism that we've inherited. So how does this Judaism that evolved in conditions where why be Jewish was not the driving question, how does it adjust to a reality where why be Jewish has to be the central question? And, you know, I have this impulse that artists are a big piece of the the solution right that that essentially that is the the task of artists is is in part to be able to help negotiate that kind of transition because artists are are exploring those kinds of questions a lot of people say Ugh, art are you serious like if i have a hundred dollars right now am i going to invest in a painting or am i going to invest in food 
Am I going to invest in an organization that is fighting for refugees or is making theater? Right? Where am I going to invest? What's priority? And in the culture we are living in today, certainly in the United States, art is going to be secondary to education or social change. Um, but if you think about it more broadly, the question that I'm saying about Judaism, it is not the bottom line. Human experience is the bottom line. Judaism serves that. It's the same for art. Art is not the bottom line. It's not art for art's sake. It's art for the sake of human experience or change. And artists will tell you, what are you talking about? I'm making art because I'm making art because art is beautiful. And people will tell you, I'm doing Jewish because Jewish is important. So um, I, I think that that dance between doing something for its own sake or for its bigger context is an interesting place where art and, let's say, religion are interacting right now. And the postmodern and the fact that we have more choice to not just be one thing but many things is a new phenomenon in the human experience and in the, in the communal experience. And I think you're right that where artists come in as necessary change agents is in the transmission and in the translation of abstract notions into emotionally evocative experiences that people can relate to. So if it is painting or if it's music, if it's theater or architecture, if it's any form of the artistic, it's taking complicated abstract ideas and relating them to people in a way that resonates not just intellectually but emotionally. And I think that is the pivotal role of the artist. So this is probably not relevant to when the the podcast will be on, but as you all probably know, we are um, in the beginning of the three weeks, and this past Sunday was the fast day of the 17th of Tammuz. The original reason of the 17th of Tammuz, that is the day in which the golden calf was destroyed, and the first set of the tablets was shattered, and the first civil war in our history took place over religious causes. When Moses is horrified by the builders of the golden calf and um, instructs the Levites to go and kill their brothers who danced around the calf, and 3,000 Hebrews are killed. That's our first moment of religious strife over the artistic expression of the divine. Um, had I been there, I assume I would have donated and danced around the calf from the simple religious impulse that makes me appreciate the sensory and the sensual. I think the Golden Calf is our first and most successful fundraising project in Jewish <laughs> history. And it is our first collective artistic project. And what is so heartbreaking about this day is that it is a moment of collision between image and word, between the depiction of the divine and mystery in a tangible gold item and the expectation that we will connect to the divine into mystery via abstract and via law. So when Moses comes down with the first written text in our history that depicts the covenant with the divine that is abstract and unseen, Moses comes face to face with humanity at its most base that says, yeah, yeah, we want God and we want a system, we even want religion, but we want it in ways that we can touch dance around and appreciate. And that moment of collision between image and word, left brain and right brain, abstract and sensory, has been with us since that moment onward. That memory of the golden calf and how we as a people appreciate the sensory, I think there's a trauma there. There's a scar there that we haven't quite gotten over. And with all of our love for the artistic instruments that make not just 
civic Jewish life, but religious Jewish life, so complete, there was still a scar there. So when you say Jewish art and Jewish artists, there's a bit, there's still subconsciously a bit of an ouch that I think some of us are working to repair. You're running an organization that is an artist-driven synagogue-type community, and you've been involved with storytelling, the theater company, and with Reboot and other organizations. And I'm wondering if you could give us some examples of what artists have been able to do that is bringing a new lens into Jewish life. The storytelling project, which I began and, and has evolved into so many forms right now, at its core takes the traditional unit in which the Torah is transmitted and proclaimed and ritualized um, and makes it into theater. So you walk into a synagogue or wherever the ritual is done, whether it's somebody's b'mitzvah or a Shabbat morning or high holidays, and instead of just someone standing on a stage and chanting from a scroll in Hebrew, um, that happens, but alongside that are actors acting out the story and asking you, the audience member, to actually interact and share your voice and make commentary, known as midrash, which is a Jewish art form of, you know, op-edding. And suddenly this arena becomes a site-specific theater. And the script is challenging scripture, and we're looking at how we're negotiating our heritage and our modern needs. So storytelling, or uh, you know, at its uh, at, is at the core of Lab Shul, and we've trained over the years hundreds of of actors and musicians and clergy and educators to think of the way we transmit Torah as an artistic storytelling form, and it changes everything because suddenly you're riveted, and suddenly it's interesting, and suddenly it's theater, and not just a stale or lesser interesting moment of religious recycling. So that's one. Um, music, right? So there's a lot of debate whether one does or does not use music in worship. Somebody who grew up Orthodox, we never had instruments, we sang. But nowadays we use music, and we use music as, and I'm using this as in the best sense of the word, as an emotional manipulation, as to get people to really open up to spirit and to self. We are so cynical and so jaded and so guarded. So here's a way to really get us to deeply feel through music. And at Labshul, we work extensively with a lot of musicians to craft fantastic music that opens us up in a personal, private, and public way. So that's another example. And the third I want to say, again, I'm in the area of worship, is the words themselves. So we've inherited a prayer book, which is an anthology of poems. That is an art form. And we inherited a book that is a piece of technology. But in the 21st century, books are heavy and expensive, and not everyone uses paper anymore. We use screens. And the words we've inherited are an accumulation of hundreds of years of other people's poetic thoughts about the spirit. So part of what we do in Labshul as God-optional and artist-driven is redefine what words we use. We're working with poets to retranslate the liturgy into modern norms that speak to everybody, atheist and believer, poetically inclined. And we don't use books. We use screens that are designed by artists. So when you walk into any of our prayer um, or worship uh, environments, the walls themselves are art. And the words there are generated by artists. And so whether you're someone who's comfortable with the Jewish experience or new to it, you feel like you are in a sophisticated, modern 
sensitive environments where the aesthetic matters a great deal. So these are just some examples where art is the major change agent and as an aesthetic and intellectual and emotional and spiritual change agent. Wow. I, I'm really curious to hear more about about one piece of what you just mentioned, which is sort of the technological aspect. You mentioned how, you know, we've got this transition to screens. And I think there's a tendency, I certainly subconsciously think this way sometimes, and I think lots of us do, to look at sort of art and technology as sort of in competition with one another. When I think about my own networks of people, the people that are most invested in, you know, the tech world and the people who we think of as artists are not always the same people. And yet it sounds like you've done some amazing work combining the the technological with the artistic. And um, I'd love to hear more about that. And I also uh, maybe, I mean, Maybe this is the direction you want to go. Maybe it's not. But I know that Lab Shul, through the use of technology, created something that both Dan and I participated in, actually, this Kaddish ritual for folks over the phone. And and I like maybe that plays into this question, maybe not. But how how have you been able to blend the worlds of art and technology so that they're actually working in concert? My friend Stephen Wernick, who's at the head of the conservative movement, says that the, the two factors that most hinder the evolution of synagogue are books and chairs. Once we started sitting and once we started reading, we lost a lot of our spontaneous being. That could be debated. But we're at a point right now where where we sit and how we gather and how we congregate, um, certainly for millennials and the next generations, is an interesting challenge. And that there's no question that screens are the new way we're interacting with the world. So the notion of the digital, not just as uh, a means to an end, but as its own thing, that the medium is the message, is huge. Um, by us using uh, screens as our way of projecting liturgy, we are not just making an environmental and a financial choice, but making an aesthetic choice about delivery and about getting people all on the same page using less liturgy. And there's a price to pay for it, but I think it's a statement about modernity and about being where we are now. As a community that does not have its own uh, location, we are a pop-up, and we rely a lot on virtual and digital communication. Uh, we pay a lot of attention to how our messages are transmitted. And um, in the year ahead, whether it's going to be um, my High Holy Day blog that's going to go via Instagram and us uh, web streaming our events in, in as an expensive and professional way as we can and not just shoving a camera in front of the stage, we're paying more attention to how people interact with their lives and their spiritual lives via online and via screens, not as a byproduct, but as an intentional delivery system. So we're thinking about that. We're aware that it's there and we're spending a lot of time with people in our community and beyond to think outside the box. Uh, the example you mentioned um, came out of a practical need. When my father passed away a year and a half ago and I uh, took upon myself to say Kaddish, I realized that as a as a man, I have more opportunities to say Kaddish in more places with a minion than, say, a woman. And then as a liberal Jewish man who really prefers to be in an egalitarian co-ed system, um, I actually don't have as many opportunities as um, as an Orthodox man. So one of the things I decided to do is create an experimental um, once-a-week online cottage where people basically phone in uh, for an afternoon, and it's not a prayer service. It's just a check-in 
moment with a meditative aspect and just saying the mourners Kaddish in Aramaic together, it still goes on. There's people who call in weekly. There's new people who call in all the time. I hear that you both, unfortunately, had to join it for your own needs. And, you know, we, we can discuss whether that is an aesthetic or whether that is a theological, a mystical, or a sociological um, solution or all of the above, but the aesthetics of people coming together and being there for each other at a moment of need, whether we do it in person with 10, and whether those 10 are only men or only Jews, or whether we create a way to provide the human soul with sustenance and solace, and we use technology to make that work to the best of our ability, I think in some way that is art. Because you take what's there, like Michelangelo's slab of marble, and you carve out of it something magnificent that speaks to the human need and gives us what we need to nurture ourselves and empower ourselves and help us flourish. So can we shift gears a little bit before we run out of time? I'd love to talk about God a little bit because I'm... Uh, intrigued. I've always been intrigued by the way that Labshul also describes itself as God optional. Uh, for me in particular, with the online Kaddish or, or on the phone Kaddish uh, project, one of the ways that you, that you phrased that was for people who have a hard time coming to synagogue or something like that, which could be interpreted both as people who physically have a hard time getting there, but also people who emotionally uh, can't really take it, like me. And I and I found that very welcoming, both because it affirmed my feelings, but it also made it very clear that, that there were going to be people there that had a different uh, point of view, and that that was okay, that this was an initiative that honored both points of view. And I feel like often there seems to be a struggle in the Jewish community, whether it's about God or, or other things, that uh, we have to choose whether it's going to be this or going to be this, as opposed to, and again, maybe I, I see this as an artist's gift, to find a way to present the experience in such a way that it can actually move and appeal to people, no matter what their position is on some of the issues that are otherwise most hot. And and God is certainly a, a huge one there. And I'm wondering if what you could just share with us in terms of both what you've learned in doing this as to what are these Jews who are not participating in your typical Jewish organizations, you know, what are they looking for or not looking for in terms of God? So I think the key two words in this in this part of the conversation are the words as if. When you go to a theater, or you go see a movie, or you read a novel which is fiction, you are in as-if mode, even if it's based on historical and it's and it's grounded in, in fact. You're in as-if. And the as-if, the, okay, fiction, art, makes my heart, my soul, my consciousness open in ways that is different whether I'm here at a historically inclined lecture that is fact-driven. And the as-if is the key element of art. My entire work with storytelling was about opening the Bible as an as-if opportunity. That's the role of translation. That's the role of commentary. We're saying as-if. What if this happened? What if we talk back to the text and imagine this end? To the tragic end of the book of Esther, or to what happened to the golden calf, or when Abraham binds Isaac, or to the deportation of Ishmael. Any of those pregnantly difficult moments, as-if. What if? Let's play. So once you do that, you open it up, and I think that is a key feature of Jewish life. That is what 70 Faces is about. That is the oral tradition. You open up another angle. Now, take that to liturgy and take that to theology. We're saying 
as if, what if, G-O-D is a Western construct of the divinity, which is complicated, which is layered, which at least in the Judaic vocabulary has and continues to enjoy many titles and many names and many depictions that are paradoxical and sometimes contradictory. G-O-D, God, has become like a placeholder for a primarily masculine, but not necessarily very sort of Christian-minded, judgmental on the throne, up in heaven, father thing that for many people today just feels completely off-putting and not how we connect to the mystery of creation and being, whatever that means to us. So where I think the artists are helpful and what we're trying to do by being God-optional and artist-driven is saying, okay, let's open this up as artists do by first of all translating it differently. So uh, Labshul, as of last year, took G-O-D out of our liturgy. Every time you come to a Labshul event, we use the Hebrew liturgy. We would use Adonai. And you can see the Hebrew there on the screen. And you can see the English poetically translated. There's never going to be God there. There's maybe source. There's maybe being. There's maybe spirit. And we're not the first to do it. But we're consistent about saying we don't want it there because that word is too baggaged. And then we take it a step further by talking about being genderless and by not being uh, relational. And we're inviting people to think about the spiritual or the sacred or the mysterious in ways that as a 21st century theist or non-theist, we can make sense of. And I think this is where art is helpful because we're saying, what if? We're saying as if. We're offering another take on a perennial classic. And we are inviting the participants, whether it's on the phone, saying Kaddish, or whether on Yom Kippur, or on any program, to think and feel along, aloud with us about what's my metaphor? How would I paint this differently? How am I going to look at this piece of art called life and come up with my own interpretation? So it's not like I'm looking at a blob of blue paint on the wall and saying, oh, that's Picasso's blue period. But I'm saying and looking, I don't know, it's something blue. What do I make of it? Um, it's a pluralistic notion. It is um, a notion that really honors the human experience and challenges us to be creative and be deeply personal and not to be beholden to one image or one depiction of what truth is. And if I go back to what I was saying before about the golden calf, my, my sadness about that story is that it's a moment when in our tradition, one voice, that of Moses, says there's one way to be Jewish, there's one way to do God, there's one way to depict the mystery, it's my way, Yahweh, and there's no other way. And if you don't play by my way, I'll kill you. And I want to say, I respect your way of saying this is what God means to you and this is how the divine operates in the world and this is where Jewish law and Jewish practice works. But you know what? What if we open it up to other experiences and the people who dance around the golden calf, and I'm not comparing one-on-one, it's, it's, we're not in a pagan reality per se, but the people who found other ways of experimenting with the divine and being, and being alive for mystery, okay, great. This is yours. This is mine. Let's open it up. It isn't one way. It's many ways. And that, I think, is the challenge of modernity for a very, very seasoned and weathered Jewish way of life. I'll take it one step further, and I'll say, really, how we rebrand God is a really fantastic challenge for the modern age. 
and we're not the first to do it. Uh, it is what the translators of the Torah into Aramaic and Greek had to contend with in their Greco-Roman period where suddenly you can't say that God has a nose and a hand and is a male because then he's like Zeus or Jupiter. So they found another way of translating the divine in more abstract ways. And it was the Maimonides challenge in, you know, in his own philosophical model of a remote heaven. Um, and a divine. And then it's the Kabbalists, the Zohar, that create the spheres and create the divine as multi-faced. And then, of course, there's the feminine divine that has been banished from our conversation under 2,000 or so years of patriarchy, but she's never gone away. And now, 100 years into feminism, she is back in a whole new way that is challenging our gender binaries. And men and women, straight and gay and other, want to say, wait a minute, what is this non-masculine, no-feminine way of dealing with the divine? And this is, again, where art uh, can play a major role in opening up opportunities. It isn't one way, it's many ways. And liturgy and the type of music, how we open up the text, how we invite people to be artists and co-creators, invites us all to think of these notions in a very freeing way, which still compels us to, in some way, be around the same canvas, even though our artistic expressions are going to be radically different. Maybe I'll use one last example, and that is, last week I saw some film about whatever, the French court of Louis XIV, where dance was so formal. Everybody danced in the same way. And then think about how we dance today at a wedding, whether it's a horror circle or just you know a dance party, we're all dancing in the same place, but we're dancing differently. Sometimes crazy, sometimes not. And yes, there's some music. We're not all dancing the same choreographed dance, even though we're all on the same dance floor. And I like that. And we get to have our own artistic expression, even and especially when it comes to how we deal with the biggest questions of life, which is how we connect to the sacred within ourselves, with each other and with a mystery which some people like to call God and I no longer do. Well, I was just, um, you know, I was, I was thinking about the first time that we met and I remember telling you that the book Who Wrote the Bible changed my life and, and in many ways because of the things that you're talking about, right? For me, it was this understanding that the Bible and, and therefore in my thinking, right, all of Judaism, uh, having been based on the Bible, had a multivocal tradition that I was not really made aware of, uh, also growing up in an Orthodox environment. And that was, you know, for me, very exciting and very liberating to say that we can mine this material for many voices and it doesn't only have to be one. And I remember you telling me that for you, it was reading the King David report and and for sort of similar reasons. And so now I'm thinking that this is why I've been involved in trying to bring the Secret Book of Kings into English was because it too is trying to tell a story about the multivocality of the tradition, whether that is elevating the voices of women or also presenting the Northern Kingdom as a different point of view on how Judaism could be. And I was just, I know that you've read it and liked the book too, and I'm curious if if you uh, think it ties into the things that you're talking about as well. I mean, I I think that's a great example. Um, My own experience really waking up to the notion that there's not just one way, but many ways to tackle the sacred and be Jewish for that matter, not just orthodox, but polydox, sometimes paradox, and definitely flexidox. Um, So literature was a big part of it. Um, In my teens, opening 
my eyes to what I then learned was biblical criticism and saying, wait, this is a piece of art that was written by people with a very strong religious motivation, but it isn't one monolithic text that came down from heaven as is. Um, and there were various texts, but one of them was the piece of fiction by um, by Stefan Heim, the, the uh, East German communist Jewish writer who's no longer alive, who wrote this book, The King David Report, uh, in the 80s, I believe. And um, the book is telling how King Solomon commissions a, an author to write the rise to uh, fame and glory of the Davidic Empire. And it's written as a very subtle critique of the East German communist regime. And he couldn't write it as that, so he wrote it as this, the, the King David story. I remember reading this in my late teens at Yeshiva and thinking like, he's lying. There's no way this is what's in the Bible. And then opening the Bible and thinking, oh, wow, he's not lying. This is really what happened with David and Solomon. Oh, my God. And there are all these different visions here and different versions here. And it isn't, isn't clear what is the one story of, of David and that the Bible is a patchwork of different opinions. So it was a piece of literature, a brilliant one, that got me to open my eyes to what is my legacy and how um, having multiplicity of perspectives and viewpoints actually enriches who I am on so many levels. Um, and the secret book of Kings, Malachim Gimel, um, did the same thing years later, opening up sort of another layer of the biblical story and empowering me as a reader and as a thinker to think more deeply about the benefits of the multivocality and how it makes the Bible actually a more beloved text and a more interesting and intriguing invitation into making peace of all the pieces and finding how I relate to it and what I want to take from it. Um, so I think literature, like great art, like great film, like great music, is really the way for us to tap into mystery in a way that binds us, but also let us you know, be unbound. Great. Well, thank you so much for a great conversation. It was so good to have you. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. We greatly appreciate Amichai Lalavi coming onto the show, representing Labshul. If you're interested in learning more about what they're up to there, you can head to labshul.org. That's L-A-B-S-H-U-L.org. And as always, we want to close out by encouraging you to be in touch with us, too. So you can head to our Facebook page, Judaism Unbound. You can always hit up our website, JudaismUnbound.com. And of course, you can send us an email at dan at nextjewishfuture.org or lex at nextjewishfuture.org. And if you want to support us with a monthly donation, even of just $3 or $5 every month, you can head to our Patreon account at www.patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N slash Judaism Unbound. Thanks for listening again. And with that, this has been Judaism Unbound.